The gospel this morning comes to us from the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. It can be found in the seventh chapter of Matthew, beginning with verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. The good news of Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you in the name of our still speaking God who loves us just the way we are and loves us too much to let us stay that way. <laughs> I want to begin by thanking Kent for inviting me to share in the ministry of God's word with you today and to be part of your Lenten focus on what it means to be faithful stewards of creation. Thanks be to God for the work that your Green Up team and all the ways that your congregation is engaging the most pressing moral issue humanity has ever faced. But before I begin my sermon, let me also give thanks for some additional ways in which your congregation is a beacon, not only for Brookline, but for the United Church of Christ. First of all, I give thanks for your pastor, Kent. Good churches call good pastors, and your decision to call Kent is shaping and will continue to shape your congregation's vision and witness and the witness you are making in Brookline and beyond. I celebrate that you are reading Nadia Boltz Weber's book, Praxis, excuse me, Pastrix. Nadia will be our keynote speaker at the Mass Conference annual meeting in June, and I hope many of you will come to Amherst in order to hear her and to experience the energy that emerges when representatives of our 370 churches come together. I'm grateful for all the ways in which your congregation is stretching into justice, not only through your generous financial support of numerous worthy projects, but also by your hands-on commitments in the partners you are connected with. And I'm thankful for your generous contributions in 2014 of over $5,000 to the United Church of Christ and the Massachusetts Conference and for all the ways the members of your church provide leadership in both the Metropolitan Boston Association and in the Massachusetts Conference. In all of these ways, you are expanding what all of our churches can accomplish together. So thank you for being such a blessing to our life together in the United Church of Christ. Thank you for upholding and blessing one another. And thank you for reaching out to those in your community who could never imagine that a church like the United Church of Christ exists. They need the blessings you have to offer. And now let us be in a spirit of prayer. 
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So if that scripture passage was the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, what's the winter equivalent of Jesus' conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount? Perhaps it's something like the wise person who built her house on a, with a steep metal roof <laughs> that she insulated to an R60 value. In contrast to the foolish person who built his roof like so many of us in New England. Living as I do in a parsonage, I'm guessing I'm not the only one here, I won't ask for a show of hands, who has spent much of the past month with furniture rearranged to accommodate a dozen or so buckets of water dripping from sills and ceilings. But Jesus' illustration about where we build our homes can also be taken literally here in Massachusetts, especially when I'm preaching down on Cape Cod. Of course, the truth Jesus exhorts is not limited to literal interpretation. Jesus' words can illuminate the foundation of our lives, our society, and even our civilization. The things we care about most, the things our lives depend upon, are changing. It's as if we're learning that the basis, the foundation upon which we have built our society is vulnerable in ways humans never imagined. Over the past six weeks, you and I have been learning firsthand what scientists have said for years, that climate change has melted 40% of the polar ice cap, it's increased the ocean temperatures off the New England coasts, and it's made the atmosphere more than 5% wetter. As it turns out, the greatest impact of these three changes is being experienced here in New England, where since 1958, we have been suffering through a 70% increase in extreme precipitation events. That's meteorologists speak for tons of snow. But we're not alone. People in West Texas, in Arizona, and in California are in the midst of what scientists are calling a 1,000-year drought. And they certainly aren't surprised to learn that each passing year is likely to be the hottest year ever recorded. Climate change is already testing our cities, our farms, our national parks, our rivers. It's also already testing the poor, the marginalized, the elderly, the hungry, and the homeless. Under these circumstances, our usual understanding of hope is insufficient. So let me share with you what for me is one of the most hopeful stories of our time. In a place not far, in a time quite near, there were some teenagers who were distinguished most of all by their fearless courage and uncompromising hope. You knew they were fearlessly courageous because even though they were only teenagers, they had devoted years of their lives to facing up to the thing that stopped most grown-ups in their tracks. And of their hope, 
Well, their hope was like that of the young shepherd, David, who quieted his trembling hands so he could gather up a few smooth stones. Their hope was like that of the Indian champion of nonviolence, who once said, first, they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then you fight, and then you win. Their hope was like that of the carpenter's son, who assured those around them that they could move mountains and that the truth would set them free. A few years earlier, these children learned what most of us already know, that in only seven generations, humans have burned about half the known carbon reserves that nature took 150 million years to create. As a result, we've made the ocean 30% more acidic. We've set the stage for most of Miami and much of Boston to be underwater before our grandchildren die. We've made 2014 the warmest year on record. We've assured that the pace of global warming is 10 times faster than any time over the past 65 million years. And we've increased the rate of species extinction by a thousandfold. No child should have to hear this. But unlike many of us, upon hearing it, these children fearlessly persisted in their questioning. How could this happen? Why isn't the whole world focused on this? How can people keep doing the same things they've always done as if everything will continue as it always has? Isn't anyone in charge? These questions were prompted by what they had learned in elementary school, that the world was organized into countries, and our country was organized into 50 states, and our leaders were responsible to assure our safety, and that the world into which we were born would continue in a way that would give us opportunities not unlike those afforded to our parents and grandparents. Their fearless courage allowed them not to avert their attention. It allowed them to see that the assurance of continuity was in jeopardy and that most of our leaders were unwilling to take any action and that many of those leaders denied that there even was a problem. In addition to fearless courage, these teenagers were marked by uncompromising hope, and they expressed their hope by taking action. They teamed up with some attorneys and some filmmakers, and then together they made a case to protect the climate based on the public trust doctrine. The public trust doctrine, which stretches all the way back to Roman times, is well established in American law and in many other legal traditions throughout the world. It states that it is the duty of the government to protect the natural resources that are essential for our collective survival 
and prosperity. Rivers, groundwater, the seashore, and in this case, the atmosphere, cannot be privatized or substantially impaired because these natural resources belong equally to everyone, including those not yet born. I said they made a case. In fact, they have taken legal action in almost 50 states and currently have pending cases in five states, including Massachusetts. The best way to learn about their prophetic and hopeful action is to watch Bill Moyer's final program from January 1st, 2015, when he interviewed the legal mind behind the organization I've been talking about, which is called Our Children's Trust. Not only is the work of Our Children's Trust built upon legal principles that are thousands of years old, these young people are calling us to embrace moral principles that are as solid as the rock upon which Jesus would have us build the foundation of our lives. Now imagine if humanity were to regard the precious gift of water as a public trust. After all, we each begin life in water, even as evolution tells us that all of life began in water. In addition to being the most common life-preserving expression of God's creative power, soon in places like Sao Paulo and Pakistan and Phoenix, people will recognize what the ancients knew, that water is an essential and precious gift from God. It is not to be economically disregarded, wasted, or polluted. God created water, the basis of life. Water is a public trust, not a commodity. By getting in right relationship with water, humanity may be able to get in right relationship to the earth and all of God's creation. For many of you, what I'm saying, I'm sure, is quite familiar. Your awareness of water's preciousness may already be part of your everyday consciousness, but because most of us have yet to take in this truth as a foundation of our living, I want to take a moment to illustrate how we might move in that direction. About 20 years ago, when my boys were 11 and 7, our family took a three-week camping vacation in the Southwest at a time when a severe drought dominated the region. In Zion National Park, where visitors experienced the beauty of the park from the floor of the Great Valley, the temperature was well over 100 degrees and water was almost unavailable. But after days in the car, we needed showers. So my wife and I used the opportunity to teach our sons about the preciousness of water. I tied a rope around a gallon plastic jug. I, I threw the rope over a branch. I hoisted it up a tree, and I poked a small hole in the bottom of the jug so that water would flow with a steady drip. And with our bathing suits on, one by one, the four of us took a shower. 
and each of us used less than one gallon of water. In case you weren't aware, the average person taking a shower uses 17 gallons of water. Now, my point here is not to illustrate virtue. What we did was, in part, a response to the conditions we found ourselves in. And we also did it to make a lasting impression on our sons about the preciousness of water. And our hope was to make them more innovative and resilient, knowing that they were growing up in a world that would demand both. By choosing to have a smaller water footprint or a smaller waste footprint or a smaller carbon footprint, even when there is no legal obligation or financial necessity to do so, by choosing to tread more lightly on the earth, we become more conscious of the personal impact along with becoming more aware of our collective impact. And when we talk with others about our choices, we become witnesses. And thus, the seeds of activism are sown. Now let's move from personal responsibility to communal and institutional responsibility. And I'll illustrate with another story a little closer to home. A year ago, I was preaching on climate change over at Old South Church in Copley Square, where my friend Nancy Taylor, who I've known for over 30 years as the senior minister, as we will do following worship today, Old South also gathered for a, a very interesting conversation after my sermon. Several dozen members uh, attended, and as I've learned from the past month, uh, it, excuse me, uh, several dozen members of the church um, responded uh, with questions. And as, I, and as we've learned from the past month of record-breaking snow, climate change can have a huge impact on a region or even on a particular building. Old South has been paying a good bit of appropriate attention to major building projects. And so partway into our Q&A, I asked those gathered the following question. Have you taken into consideration the fact that the back bay of Boston will be underwater at least several times a year by the time our grandchildren have kids? This is very much related to the humongous challenge the MBTA has been facing to keep repairing a mass transit system that is based on direct current in a climate where precipitation will continually increase over the next many centuries makes no sense. But what about doing substantial deferred maintenance or more on a landmark flagship church? a church that is flourishing by every measure when the building's location assures it will be underwater in two generations. My advice to them was to move ahead with their building plans and commit to becoming a national leading voice in addressing climate change.
What's absolutely clear is that we need to come together, neighborhood by neighborhood, region by region, so we can muster the resilience climate change demands. And it turns out, as has been true for the 400-year history of Massachusetts, it turns out there's a UCC church in almost every town. That's because of a detail some of you might not know, and up until about 1830, you had to have a UCC church in your town in order to incorporate as a town. God is calling upon the church, the synagogue, and the mosque to rise to this challenge by leading their neighborhoods to develop appropriate, just, and life-renewing plans that fully account for the realities we have brought upon ourselves by needlessly burning too much fossil fuel and being too slow to make appropriate adjustments. There was a time when the church served to rally the community to tackle whatever challenges the town was facing. The church functioned this way because it is built upon a rock. Now it's time for the church to be reawakened to this calling. Science makes clear that the need for anticipatory leadership is immediate, and history suggests that this can only happen if faith leaders like you are recognizing that our leadership is essential if we are to create a world worth saving.